This morning, we've come to the last paragraph of the last chapter of the book of Exodus. We started this series of sermons back at the end of August. And I want to spend most of the sermon looking back at the whole book and then focusing at the end of it on this last chapter. Now, we began this journey, like I said, in, back in August. And what we saw was that over the course of the first 15 chapters, God delivers Exodus. They are slaves in Egypt. And God delivers them out of slavery. But they're not just in slavery. They're also in slavery in a country where there's a genocidal king. So they're doubly exposed to death and the threat of death. And as you begin reading Exodus, what happens is that God is using this book not only to teach us what he actually did 3,500 years ago to start the nation of Israel, he's also showing us what he did with Israel is a template for what he wants to do with all of us. And so one way that you can read the book of Exodus, that you can map it out in your mind, you can think about what's going on, is that Exodus is showing us the three greatest needs that humans have. And the first of our need is for deliverance. And that God who created us is a God who redeems us. The same God who delivered Israel from slavery and from the threat of death, this same God wants to and will deliver you. He will redeem you. And you need him to do that. Now look, this is the story Christianity tells. Christianity says the deep need of humans, there are three of them, and one of them, the first one is the need to be delivered. From what? I mean, we're not slaves in Egypt, so how exactly does this work? Well, first and foremost, at some point, all of us are going to face death. And God can deliver you from eternal death. God has the power to rescue you. He is strong enough. He is mighty enough to do something money can't buy for you, right? No matter how much money you have, you can't use that money to get out of death. You might be able to use your money to delay your death, but ultimately money cannot stop your death. John chapter 3 verse 16 tells us that God, out of the ocean of his love, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now what's going to happen to you when you die? The story that Christianity tells, and I'm using the word story not to say it's fiction, but this is the Christian view of the world, and I believe it with all of my being. The story Christianity tells is that when you die, if you will place your trust in Jesus Christ, death will not be the end of you. Now, what else offers you that? What else is strong enough to to do something so that death is not the end of you? Now, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's just absolutely enormous. And that's what 
Exodus tells us in the first 15 chapters that God who created everything is bigger than death and he's strong enough to deliver us from death. That the God who makes all things can make all things new again. And if you or I, no matter what ethnic group we're from, what country we're from, no matter how much money we have or don't have, if we will place our trust in Jesus Christ, then when you die, death will not be the end. Your soul will be safe with God until he makes all things new. He will give you a new body, and then you will live an everlasting life with a body, in joy, in peace, with purpose, in the new heavens and new earth. All of us need to be delivered from death. And God who... This God of the Bible, he is saying to us, he's strong enough to do that. He can deliver you from death. Now, the second thing that, that God is teaching us in those first 15 chapters, that he's a redeemer, he's a deliverer, he can rescue. Not only can he rescue you from the biggest threat in your life, which is death, he can also deliver you from idols, that's right at the heart of those first 15 chapters. We need to be delivered not only from death, but from idols. All through the book of Exodus, we see the danger of idolatry and that we need to flee from idols. But here's the challenge for us. We don't flee from things we don't recognize as a threat. And in all of our sophistication here in America, we think it's only like superstitious, unenlightened people groups that suffer from idolatry. But that's not true. The Bible says idols are not only statues people physically bow down to. We bring idols into our very hearts. That our hearts are idol factories. And we need to learn to see that idolatry is a thing that's happening in our culture, in our own lives. For example, money. You know people. I know people. All of us have had experiences, whether firsthand or secondhand, of money becoming an idol where you sacrifice people to get more of it and it's got you in a grip and you have some way or for some reason thought that if I can get more of it, it's worth the sacrifices I'm paying. It's going to somehow deliver on that, whether it's going to deliver happiness or deliver the good life or whatever. Money can become an idol. If you give your deep love and your loyalty to money, and here's the problem with all idolatry, a fundamental law of human life is this. We become like what we worship. And if you worship money, and what I mean by that is if you give it your deep loyalty, you will increasingly define yourself in terms of money. And you'll treat other people in terms of money. And people will become creditors or debtors or partners or customers instead of human beings. And if that's the case in your life, here's the good news. God is strong enough to deliver even an American from the idolatry of money. As strong as money is in our culture, as powerful as it is, and when you come within its vice-like grip, God can break that in your life or take sex. If you give your deep love and loyalty and affection and focus to sex, you will become enslaved to sex as an idol. You'll grow to define yourself in terms of sex 
your preference, your practice, your history, and you'll increasingly treat other people in that dimension. Other people will become actual or potential sex objects. And here's the deal. God is strong enough. This is the claim of Exodus. God can deliver somebody from the idol of sex. So in the first 15 chapters of Exodus, what we see is that God, the creator God, the God identified in Scripture, that he is strong. He's so strong, he can deliver you from the two greatest threats to your life, death and idolatry. And if you give your life, if you, if you turn to him, he will deliver you from that. Now, what else can make that, that deal for you? What else can you think of that offers you deliverance from death and deliverance from the idols that twist and deform you? Now, if the book of Exodus were only about our need for deliverance, it would end at chapter 15 because it clearly gets it on the board. But it doesn't. You get the next part of Exodus, the middle part, chapter 16 through 24. And here we see that the work of God in our lives is not merely liberation from death and the idols that disfigure us. Here we see in chapter 16 through 24 that we human beings have needs other than deliverance. That, that being rescued is not our only need. We also need, in chapter 16 to 24, we see this, we need a relationship with this God who offers us deliverance. We need, this is a human need. It's not ranked on Maslow's hierarchy, but it is a fundamental human need. Just like we need to be delivered from death and idols, we need a relationship with the creator who redeems. And in chapters 16 to 24, we see that the way that relationship occurs is through the transfer of our allegiance from our idols and from ourselves and from our causes. We need to transfer our allegiance. You're going to give your allegiance to something. And we need to transfer it from these things, idols, ourselves, our causes. We need to give our deepest allegiance, not to family, not to country, but to the God who delivers. We need to give our deepest love and strongest loyalty to God himself. This is a fundamental human need. And some people who are just coasting through life, not really being bad, you're still going to face death. What are you going to do about that? If you, haven't not owned, if you have not given your allegiance to God, you have a problem. St. Augustine, no, I'll come back to that in just a minute. How about it? Have you done this? Have you pledged your love and your loyalty to God? In Exodus 16 to 20, chapter 16 through 24, not only do we see people pledging their love and loyalty to God, we see God pledging his love and loyalty back. Notice in Exodus chapter 24, if you, if you have um, a copy of the Bible with you, find Exodus chapter 24. Notice verse 7. Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. Now, what Israel's doing here is they're declaring their allegiance. They're pledging their love and their loyalty 
to God. And notice, pledging allegiance to God is not a feeling. It's an action. It's more specifically, it's committing faithfulness. That's what it means to pledge your allegiance to God. It means you commit to be faithful to God, that God is not only a deliverer, he's also a teacher. In the book of the covenant, and this is the Ten Commandments and the law, to pledge your allegiance to God is to say, God is smarter than me. God knows more than I know. And I need God not only to save me, I need him to teach me. God teaches us the truth. He teaches us how to navigate life successfully. He shows us the grain of the universe. God's law counters the enslaving passions of fear and despair and greed and lust and pride and envy. God's law is his gift to us. And to pledge our loyalty to God is to pledge ourselves to be faithful to him, to obey him. God's laws, they show us the path to courage and moderation and self-command and empathy and righteousness. God's laws about the Sabbath and about honoring father and mother, they teach humans Gratitude rather than grasping, reverence rather than insolence. God's laws about coveting teach us contentment and civil harmony. Isn't that something we need in our society today? The laws about the stranger and the poor, they teach us compassion and generosity. On and on it goes. God's laws are his gracious gifts to us. It's the gifts of God that show us how to live good lives, lives of goodness and greatness, how to avoid the darkness in our own hearts and in the world. So my question for you is, have you, like Israel, committed your life, your love, and your loyalty to King Jesus and his ways. Have you said all that the Lord has spoken, whether I agree with it or understand it, I will do it. Have you said I will be obedient? We don't like this, do we? We want to sit in authority over God and in authority over Scripture. And we've got all kinds of sophisticated ways of saying that Scripture doesn't really apply. But at the heart of our need as humans is need for enlightenment. And the lie of modernity is that enlightenment occurred when Descartes rolled up on the scene. In the Bible, enlightenment comes from God. And so at the heart of our need is to have not only a deliverer, but a teacher to whom we submit, to whom we give our allegiance, to whom we have this relationship with. Now, that's not all there is to the human need, though. If, 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 if the book of Exodus were only showing us that humans need deliverance and by the creator and they need allegiance to the creator, if that was it, then the book of Exodus could have ended at chapter 24. Because that's all done. But in the third and final section of Exodus, Exodus chapters 25 through 40, we see that while we definitely need God to deliver us from death and idols, and we need God to teach us the grain of the universe and how to live and how to navigate life and what's right and what's wrong and what's humanizing and what's dehumanizing, 
We need all of that. We need God to deliver. We need God to teach, but it's not enough. We also need God to be near us. And that's what chapters 25 through 40 are about. We need not only rescue, not only liberation, not only to give our allegiance, we need this God who is our creator. We need to be near the creator. It's a fundamental human need. We need his presence. We need his ongoing companionship and help, his ongoing guidance and grace, his forgiveness and power. Now, if you have a Bible with you, turn to chapter 29 and notice in chapter 29, verse 45, God is telling Israel that, look, I delivered you from death and idolatry. I've given you the grace of my law, my teaching. And, the, and underneath all of this, verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is why out of 40 chapters in Exodus, 15 deal with deliverance from Egypt. Four are law, and 16 are about the tabernacle. 16 chapters. You would, I mean, when you read the book of Exodus, you would think the climactic moment as you're going through it is when God defeats Israel, kills the firstborn, brings them to the Red Seas, parts the water, clobbers their enemies. I mean, at that moment, you think, what a great movie, whoa! And then there's this whole section where he gives them the law and it climaxes in this um, wedding ceremony where they say, we will be loyal to you and God says, I'll be loyal to you and there's another ending and all of a sudden, it goes into 16 chapters of minute detail about this house, this tabernacle, this tent that God wants Israel to build. Why? Because that's where he's going to meet with them right in the midst of them this portable church, this portable sanctuary. Think about it. It took 15 chapters to tell the story of the deliverance from Egypt. It took four chapters to communicate the law, but then God takes 16 chapters telling them about how to make plates and what to build tables out of and curtains to build this thing, this tabernacle, this portable church where he's going to continue to meet with them. And then the whole book climaxes in chapter 40, the last paragraph, which Jalila read to us, where the glory of God descends. And that's the climactic part of the whole book. Look at it this way. The book of Exodus shows us that God delivers us from death and idols to himself for the sake of the world, but we don't only need God to deliver us and teach us, we desperately need his presence among us. We need to be near God. That there's something about not being near God, like a plant not getting enough sunlight. Like, like crops not getting enough water. There's something about it that makes human life ultimately non-sustainable. That, that the presence of the creator to the creation is key. We need his presence. Even after he has saved us, even after we pledged our loyalty and our love to him, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless, O God, until they rest in you. This is our deepest need. You can be saved 
You can be walking with in the ways of God. And you need still the presence of God. And God knows that. And he knows that so much that more than 40% of the book of Exodus is dedicated to making this tent so that the people of Israel can gather with God and God can meet with them. Until, Until God rests in you and you rest in God, you will be restless. Life is full of so much temptation. We are tempted by our own evil desires and we are tempted by the world's agenda and we're tempted by the devil. And as much as we want to live lives faithful to God, sin is always there pulling, tempting, drawing us away. Look at it this way. The book of Exodus not only tells the story of what God did 3,500 years ago with Israel, it tells the story of what all of us need God to do here and now. We need him to deliver us from death and idols. We need him to teach us. We are not smart enough. And we need him to be near us. We need God's deliverance, God's teaching, and God's presence. Or if I want to get Baptist, I grew up in the Baptist church, I'll alliterate. We need liberation, we need law, and we need liturgy. Liturgy, this, it's a word that means what a group of people do when they gather together to worship God. That's what the tabernacle is. Just think about it. 15 chapters on deliverance from Egypt, 5 chapters of law, and then 16 chapters on how to build this thing where you're going to worship me. And then the whole next book of the Bible is how you worship when you're in that place. All of Leviticus. Do you see that God's putting so much emphasis on God's people coming together to worship him? That's what the tabernacle is for. It's the place where Israel would gather to worship God. And here's the catch. When they did, God meets them in worship. So think about this. It is when a church gathers together in worship that we remember who God is and what he's done. And every week when we gather here to worship, we remember together that Jesus died on the cross to deliver us from our sins and from death. And we practice together the hope that Christ will come again to make all things new. It's in worship where we pay attention to God's law. We have these sermons where we listen to his teachings for how to live our lives. And we not only learn what God expects from us, But week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we surrender again. Your way, God, not my way. Your will, God, not my will. But in addition to all of that remembering and all of that learning, it's in worship that we have the opportunity to encounter God directly. Listen again to the final, the final paragraph of Exodus. Exodus chapter 30, 40, starting in verse 34. Listen to what God does with this portable church, this tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This tent, right in the middle of where all of them are camped, the tabernacle is the place for Israel to gather in worship. Worship is the sacred site of experiencing the presence of God. Worship is about more than binding us to one another in some sociological ritual. Worship provides the opportunity for fresh encounters with God in our midst. And that's what Israel needed in order to move forward. So the book of Exodus began by teaching us about our need for God's deliverance. And then in the middle, we learn about our need to give our allegiance to God. And it comes to a close by showing us our need for God's presence and the way he gives us his presence is not a personal quiet time. It does not end in 16 chapters of a quiet time. It does not end in 16 chapters of how to meet God on your own. Now, is that true? Yes, it's true. But it is not what the Bible puts the weight on. It's in worship, public corporate worship. It's when we gather together week after week to worship God together that God promises to be with us and to give us fresh opportunities for personal and corporate encounters with him. And this is what keeps Christianity from descending into mere tradition. Have you made gathering in worship with the church a fundamental non-negotiable part of your life? Have you recognized that as deep as your need for deliverance from death and idols and as deep as your need to submit to the teachings of God, as deep as those two things are, just as deep is your need to encounter God in worship with God's people. Can you experience the presence of God outside of worship on Sunday morning? Absolutely. But the primary way that God meets with us, Scripture teaches us, the primary way he meets with us is when we gather together for worship. In all the needs that the pandemic has highlighted, this is a fundamental need. We, the book of Exodus lays out three big massive boulders for what humans need. We need deliverance. We need teaching from outside of our collective intelligence. We need God to break in with revelation. And we need to encounter God. And he chooses to give us his presence fundamentally, but not exclusively. Fundamentally, when his people gather to worship. Now, like Israel of old... We are a sinful and stiff-necked people. But thanks be to God, we can step forward just like Israel at the end of the chapter into the rest of the journey, into the rest of our lives. We can step forward with the promise of God behind us and before us. And we can step forward with the grace and forgiveness of God as a precondition for our very existence. And we can step forward with the presence of God to guide us and protect us and sustain us until the journey is done and God's mission is accomplished. Until then, as our Lord Jesus said on another mountain, 
echoing what he said to the first Moses, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Let's pray.